Welcome to the Dignity and Respect in Action podcast. This series is brought to you by the UMass Office of Equity and Inclusion and features members of the university community and other experts in the fields of diversity, equity, and inclusion. In these episodes, we'll learn about the work and experiences of our guests and gain insight from their expertise. This special edition of our podcast is a commemoration of the anniversary of the 1963 March on Washington and features an interview with Dr. John Bracey, Professor of Afro-American Studies. Your host for this special edition is journalist and 2020 UMass graduate, Jonathan Kerma. All right, so um, I guess I'll just get started with asking, you know, how are you doing, uh, Professor Bracey? How's your day going? But day is good. You know, I got up too early, but that's okay. Yeah, <laughs> I feel you on that. I feel you on that. So I guess to kind of get us started, uh, since, you know, the today's event is, is entitled The March in Washington, let's kind of talk about uh, what built up, you know, what were the events that led to the original March on Washington in 1963, uh, from your perspective? Uh, the, the, the march was in uh, August. Yep. But uh, civil rights activity had been picking up. I was in Chicago. I had transferred from Howard University after spending a year working in the government as a mail clerk to Roosevelt University in Chicago, which was a very radical school. It had been started in 1946 by faculty who left the Central YMCA College because of quotas on blacks and Jews. And they went down to the street, got a building, and formed Roosevelt University. So when I got there in 1961, the university was only 15 years old. Wow. Uh, but it was full of people that, that couldn't get jobs other places, the best place I've ever been. And my cousins told me that it might be the only school in the country that would put up with me, so I should try Roosevelt. Uh, <laughs> and they, they probably were right. Uh, so I had wonderful teachers, and it was an activist, activist school. The, if you had a demonstration, the faculty would come and they'd apologize that they have a class so they couldn't get arrested, but was that okay if they just carried a picket sign, this kind of thing. Uh, and they would give you homework to do when you were locked up, this kind of thing. Or if they, if they had the time, they would get arrested with you. And this, the school was that kind of place. And so it took me about a year to get acclimated because I had come from Washington, D.C. And, you know, I didn't know Chicago very well at all. So I pretty much did school politics. You know, we had a Negro history club, this kind of thing. But in the spring of 63, uh, even before that, I was active in Chicago Friends of SNCC. Mm -hmm. And so young people would come up from the South to Chicago for R&R. You know, if you've been in the movement, somebody, you know, like I met LaVon Brown that way. He's on the panel with me later on. he had been, you know, the Klan had tried to basically wring his neck off, so he had a neck brace. So they sent him up to Chicago and just said, keep him out of trouble. Uh, Jimmy Travis had buckshot because the Klan had shot him with a, with a, with a shotgun. Uh, and so he had, uh, he had buckshot. Wow. Uh, and so my job was to keep them out of trouble because they were already, you know, already, you know, in the front lines. And they immediately says, why are you helping us? Chicago doesn't look all that great either. So they wanted to know, like, what's happening in Chicago? So I took them around to some of the things I was doing. So they ended up pushing, you know, kind of pushing me to do stuff because they said, you can't just be helping us in Mississippi. You got you got to stay in your own city. And what uh, kind of, and you said doing stuff, what, what kind of stuff did they uh, have you doing? Oh, sit-ins, sit-ins. Okay, sit-ins. Uh, this was uh, nonviolent direct action. Uh, you uh, 
we blocked uh, in the, in the, let's say it in the fall. We, you, you picketed a school board, uh, you picketed construction sites, uh, you had marches downtown in the loop. You know, it depends on what the issue was. Uh, but those are the main things. The big issue in Chicago, there are two big issues. One was the school. Schools are horrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, the most segregated schools in the country. And the person who was working with the most data on that was in fact Maya Weinberg, who later came to the School of Ed at UMass, and you know, he died about uh, 2003. And he transferred from the School of Ed into our department, Afro-Am department, so I got to know him really well. Uh, but I didn't know him in Chicago, I just knew his name. So if you had to, if a reporter questioned you on any factual stuff, and they would say, where did you get that? You just say Weinberg, and they back up off you. Because he was like the world's leading expert on uh, equal education opportunity. He was a brilliant, brilliant guy. Uh, and I didn't meet him until he got here. But he, uh, when I was in Northwestern, he also had a magazine called Integrated Education that published uh, the political stuff I did at Northwestern. So anyway, so I was doing school stuff. And then the, in the spring, the NAACP decided, you know, they were going to move, they were going to have their convention, 1963 convention in Chicago. Uh, in July. And that would have been okay because nobody paid any attention to him. Uh, but what, what happened was before the convention, Mayor Daly said that he would welcome the convention, but you didn't need it in Chicago because everything was fine. There were no ghettos and black people were happy. So building up to the convention, people are getting more and more and more pissed off about it. This is, this is not going to work. This is really not going to work. Uh, the second thing that happened is young people were coming from all over the country to the NAACP convention. They brought in, you know, youth councils from the South. So uh, the guys I was working with out of Philadelphia, guys in the Revolutionary Action Movement and Black Nationalist Movement, we, we went to talk to the young people at the hotel the night before the 4th of July meeting in the park. And they were going to, what we were going to do, we were going to picket the convention itself, Mayor Daly you know, just wave some signs and sit down and listen to the rest of the convention. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it didn't, didn't work out that way. Uh, they found out about it. Uh, somebody told somebody. And so they took the Mississippi kids and put them up on the stage. So that was to be the people that were the people that were supposed to be out like out store, you know, the guys with us, right? So there were about maybe, I don't know, 10 of us. And when Mayor Daly came out, we said, well, do we go with just the 10 or do we just forget about it? And I said, we got to go with what you got, right? Uh, so the, the pictures that I sent in, you know, that I gave copies to Nefertiti of me on the front page of the paper, I'm in the front, not because I was leading anything, it was because they didn't have that many people. Uh, <laughs> and and the, the, the police were coming and the police came down all the aisles, you know, it must have been like five, 10,000 people out in the park with these road chairs. And we start down the middle aisle, and the police come down and block it. So I go to the side and come around behind them, and that's how I end up in the front, because the police are, are trying to push us back. And so I end up basically in the front, and then the police regroup, and I'm staying. You can't see them in the picture, but I'm like three feet, and it got smaller from the, the, the captain in the Chicago Police Department, who was in my face telling me back up. And I would have backed up. I wasn't crazy. Uh, and so I tried to back up, but when I tried to push back, I turned around and there were a thousand people behind me. Like all these people, none of whom I knew, none of whom I had organized, mm-hmm. agreed with, with our stance on the mayor, right? 
So I'm trying to like back back up, but they're pushing me forward, forward. So the captain's standing there. So I think, you know, he says, you know, you have a problem. I said, no, no, I think you have a problem because I can't back up. So like somebody got to move. So the, the police backed up and they took the mayor off the stage. Uh, the other thing that worked in our favor was that when uh, we started to rush the stage, because we were going to rush the stage, the Mississippi kids kicked the mics out on, it kicked the wires out, the microphone wires out. So the, the mics went dead on the stage. And once you lose wow. control of the, of the audience with a mic, you know, all you could hear was our chanting. So then by the time they plugged the mics in again, the mayor's talking about this must be the Republicans. But by this time we have, I mean, there's already thousands of people behind me pushing and all like that. And the mayor walks up and we stop him. He doesn't speak and he walks off the stage. Uh, and I'm trying to figure out, do I have a life after this? Because this is Mayor Daly, and he's like, why am I messing with the most powerful political guy in Chicago? And I'm like, I'm like 22 years old. Uh, and I don't have an organization. So the, the organization name that I give them is the National Afro-American Organization, which I just made up. People now are trying to do research on it, and I keep trying to tell them there's no such organization. And they said, no, I didn't, no, no, I just made it up because they said, what do you belong to? Well, I was not a member of the NAACP. Uh, and I wasn't going to tell them I was a member of the Revolutionary Action Movement, which I was, but that we had, it was underground. We had an underground revolutionary group and we went to Panthers. The Panthers held press conferences. We didn't hold press conferences. That's why I'm saying Because we didn't say, you know, we're going to take on the government and we're going to hold a press conference. No, you don't. You just work with people as they are in motion. I mean, that was our, our strategy. Uh, you go where people are doing things and you help people do what they're doing and you don't try to impose your ideas on other people. Uh, but the way people will listen to you was if you were with them, you know, so if you get locked up, you have a lot of time to talk to people. So then you can talk to them about how you don't think the system works very well. And so I was way to the left of most people. You know, I'd been a socialist since I was about 19 uh, after reading Du Bois. Uh, when Du Bois said that a system based on private greed can never bring public good. And that settled it for me. I mean, that's capitalism, you know. And if you can sell my great-grandparents, then why would I want to belong to a system that sells human beings? I mean, you have right. to go a long, long, long way to convince me of the morality of a form of social organization that allows you to sell human beings. Like, there's no morality at all. So, you know, like, okay, okay, what do you do other than that? Well, I wasn't, I didn't like the Soviet Union and all that. But so you look for people of color. So my ideology was, what are people of color doing? So you look to Africa, Asia, you know, China, and wherever, West Indies, wherever there are movements of people of color, that's who you wanted to participate with. So that was my outlook. Uh, but in Chicago, but you have to do it where you are. You know, you can't fight, you know, a broad thing, you have to fight in local things. So anything that happened right, locally, right. I would go volunteer to participate in. So that's why I ended up organizing NAACP youth councils at this convention. Uh, but I didn't have a group. I mean, I wasn't going to say that we had 10 people because then, you know, <laughs> it wouldn't have lasted very long. Uh, and so the mayor uh, left. And shortly after that, uh, Joseph H. Jackson, who was the head of the uh, Pilgrim Baptist Church and the National Baptist Convention. His, his wing of the Baptist Church had been in a big fight with Martin Luther King. And all the Baptist people in the audience, you know, church folk, hated him. So I, went, I was sitting down trying to kind of recoup to see if I had a life left. And all these other people ran him off the stage because he had, you know, he was so backwards that when they named South Parkway Martin Luther King Drive, he changed the address of his church to a side street. 
Mm-hmm. Yes, that's she was. And is, is all this, this is at the, the NAACP convention that you were talking yeah, yeah, about? Just, yeah, okay. big, yeah we, we, ran, we ran the mayor off the stage. And at this point, you know, you're looking around because you realize I have taken on like the whole city of Chicago with no backup. And so, you know, I'm not crazy. So I'm sitting there saying like, oh, geez. Like, you know, my aunt worked for the welfare department and it's like, you know, my, I had a cousin that worked for Curb and Gutter for the city, you know, repairing, you know, sidewalks. And so the machine will come after you. I mean, they will really do a job on you. So I'm thinking, oh crap, you know, they're going to give me tickets every time I drive my car. Uh, which they would do. I mean, that they would do that. You know, they would. You know, I could get. I'd get a speed ticket pulling out of pulling out of my uh, parking space. You know, my Volkswagen. The guy say seventy wow. miles an hour, and I say like, come on, man, it's seventy miles an hour. And the only thing that saved me were black policemen, because the, the squad cars weren't integrated before nineteen sixty five or so, uh, when the riots broke out. So you had white guys in a squad car and two black guys in a squad car. So every time my name would come up, once they knew me, then a black, uh, a squad car with black policemen would roll up and say, what's going on? And then the white cops would say, oh, we just checking IDs or whatever. And then the black cops would ask me, like, where are you going? I said, well, I'm trying to go to school. So then they would escort me to the expressway because they don't give wow. tickets on the expressway. Yeah. No, no, my protection was because we were helping the black police organize against the white police inside the police department. So the whole notion of attacking the police like the Panthers did was crazy to us because these are the people that protected us. Uh, and when I got locked up in jail, that's who kept the white policemen from beating us up, were black policemen. Because, uh, you know, we're singing freedom songs, making a whole lot of noise. And uh, uh, i never forget the first time I got, and this was later uh, in August, when at, down at 73rd and Lowe at a school construction site where I got arrested. And we were in Englewood Jail, and you know, we're singing freedom songs, making a lot of noise. And this white cop walks into the cell block and says, I want all you niggas and nigger lovers to shut up. Wow. And at this point, the desk sergeant, who's a black guy, they called him heavy. He must have weighed about 270 pounds. There. And he sat there, all of a sudden, he blocked out the whole light coming down the, the corridor and stuck his head in the door and said, Did I hear somebody say nigger? And so we all pointed to the white guy. He did, he did, he said, he said it. And Harry looked at him and said, get out of here. And then he turned to us and said, I want y'all to shut the F up because y'all you sing terribly. You know? And then we said, yes, sir, Mr. Harry, we're cool, we're cool. Uh, but that's black policemen protecting you from white policemen. So you, you, know, you don't call all policemen pigs. You know? uh, they lived in our neighborhood. You know, if I went, you know, I went to parties with the, you know, the run by the, daughter of a police sergeant and one of the people that was you know arrested me one time and he said like why are you here I say your daughter gave a party because you didn't come. i said i came here to dance man i had to call no trouble so i said you know but that's that's a different vibe than you have today with people from outside your community i mean that's why the policing thing you have uh you don't want to get rid of the police you want police accountable to you right right so if the policeman lives around the corner he's not about to jack up anybody in the neighborhood because he's at the playground you know saying like he goes to the church you go to and you see him all the time you know so what you want is people accountable to you right Right. and so part of our strategy was not to uh make broad brush attacks on anybody black you let them decide for themselves what you know what their attitude was uh and so that's july 4th uh, I had no idea that I was in the front of anything until the newspaper came out on the 5th. Those are the papers I showed. 
And I walk into the cafeteria at Roosevelt because I'm taking classes all year round to duck the draft, right? Because you get thrown into Vietnam if you're not in school. So I took summer school, winter school, vacation time, <laughs> right? If you woke me up in the middle of the night, I'm taking school, right? So I took so everything, right? So I walked into the cafeteria the next day, and, you know, we had a table where all the black people hung out, you know, the black table. Mm -hmm. uh, they called us the black bitter Bolsheviks, and you had to really be down to get to our table. You could sit around the edge of the table. Like a lot of famous historians now, like Darlene Clark Hine and Robert Harris, who could sit at the edge of the table, but if you don't have down politics, you can't sit at the table. So we had the table, which is the hardcore guys like us. Uh, and, the, you know, kind of following was maybe like 20, 30 people. And I just walked in for lunch. You know, I came, you know, drove my car down, parked it, you know, by the lake, walked over. Uh, and walked in and people started looking at me. And I kept saying, like, why is everybody looking at me? And then I went and sat down at the, at the uh, table. And they said, like, what you do yesterday? I said, I know I was in the park. And they said, we know. Then they showed me the newspaper. And I said, like, oh, hell. And this is just the Sun-Times. I was on the front page of the Tribune, too. Both of the major wow. dailies was my picture stuck up there, like, you know, like, whatever. <laughs> and and how did your, how'd your family react to seeing you, you know, essentially you were famous from this. So how did your family react? You know, I, I, can't, I, come, I come out of a family of teachers and a family of movement people. Uh, by the time I got home, the uh, police had been to my house. Wow. You know, you know, because I stayed I stay down in the park as long as I could. I'm, I'm terrified. They're like, oh, crap. When I go home, I got my mom's car. You know, uh, this is like, you know, it's going to be a mess, right? And so I thought I'd wait a little bit before I actually, you know, kind of delay, delay, delay. So I think I got home and it might be 7 o'clock. Uh, and my cousins, I had my I had beautiful cousins. We, we lived in a duplex. And my mom, my, how do we live? You see, my cousins had the, the top floor. And my mom and aunt had the, the first floor. And I had the whole basement. So they kind of, which I, was really cool because I had this whole basement thing. Uh, and when I came in, again, they kind of said, like, you know, how'd it go today? I said, I'm okay. You know, things are good. Uh, and my cousin said, uh, you know, the police came by and asked about you. I said, the police, he said, yeah, they said, you know, they had your picture and everything. And they said that you were an alcoholic and a drug dealer, <laughs> criminal. And I said, what did y'all say? I said, yep, that's him. I said, oh, man. He said, no, 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 maybe it's enough for you. Uh, the reason I survived, first of all, is my, my relatives protected me. You know, I had cousins that, that worked at Teletype, you know, uh, and loading dock guy, you know, working class brothers and sisters. And so my relationship with my neighborhood was such that I could do nonviolent stuff because these guys would say that if anybody ever messes with you, we got them. And I would say, look, I'm not in that. And they say, no, we know you're not in that. But that, nobody said, we can't be in that. Mm -hmm. So I could go to a demonstration, but if somebody like broke a picket line, they would jack them up. Like, you know, somebody crossed your picket line, you didn't hit them or anything. But you know, some white guy breaks through the line, brother comes out of the alley, boom, and you're still walking with your sign. Like, I, I don't know what's, happen like, what's happening. You know, and nobody goes through your picket line. That's Chicago. Chicago, and it's not, you know, it's rough and tumble working class politics. Uh, my, my mother always taught me from the time I was like five years old that uh, she taught my sister different, but she said that 
Her favorite poem was a poem by Georgia Douglas Johnson called The Suppliant. And the, the last line of that poem was, the strong demand contend prevail, the beggar is a fool. I was taught never to complain about anything unless I was going to do something about it. So if something happened, you know, because I went to Jim Crow schools and then an integrated school, which I hated high school. Hey, I was in fights all the time uh, with the teachers, everybody, from everybody. Uh, and, but if I came home and said that the teacher said something racist, she would say, well, what did you say? You know, she said, don't tell me. And I said, don't tell me that white people do bad things. She said, I'm older than you. I know that. What did you do about it? You know, so if I did something, she would back me up. But don't, don't complain that she's going to do something about it. Like, why are you telling me? Like, you're not telling me nothing I don't know. Your job is to do something about it, right? And so I was supported in doing things, you know, doing things that, that you know, when I stood up, my, my people supported me. Uh, they, they paid for my uh, trip to the March on Washington. I don't know if I told you that last time. Uh, I didn't have any money. I'm a grad. You know, I'm just a student. I'm not even a grad. So I'm an undergrad. I have, like, no money. You know, I'm nickel dime in it. I'm borrowing my mom's car to go to school. You know, we put together everybody to get lunch so everybody can share the hamburgers and all. And we're having a barbecue. Our family always gathered, you know, big family. My, my, my cousins, uh, Jerome, Jerome, who owned the building, he had like five brothers and sisters, and, and I had four cousins. So, you know, barbecues are like big family things, right? Mm-hmm. And we're out there in the backyard, and everybody's barbecuing. And my cousin, they were always on me about politics. You know, my cousin Marshawn worked in advertising, Quaker Oats, you know, Morehouse man, you know, uh, uh, Alpha was always telling me I should join a fraternity. I ain't, I ain't in that Marsha, I ain't in that stuff, man. Like, leave me alone. And you ought to get in the advertising, make some money. So Marsha, I ain't in that, man. Leave me alone. And then he said, I suppose you go into that stupid march with all them crazy people. I said, what march? He said, they're going all the way down to Washington to march around the monument or something. You're not going? I said, I don't have no money to go. And he said, time out, time out. You got to go. All the crazy people going, you got to go too. So <laughs> they stopped the barbecue and said, okay, my nickname was Pete. They say, how much does it cost to go? I say it costs $25 round trip for the train. You know, we had a, they had two charter trains. So they put up immediately, everybody threw in $5. So here's the $25. And they said, I suppose you want to eat while you're down there too. I said, would well, be nice. It's okay. So they threw in another $25. And then they went back to the barbecue. They, wow. they didn't have no discussion of it. They said, you said, you said, good, go ahead. No, you can go. That's my family. Wow. You know, that's my family. Uh, I never, I, my aunt would, my aunt who was really very kind of afraid when I came home one night, because I got locked up several times, and I get home late. And my aunt looked at me when, when time, and I come in, I sit at the table and drink, you know, eat a peanut butter sandwich and, and um, drink a glass of milk or whatever. And she said, you know, you would have liked my husband. Now, her, you know, my uncle, her husband died before I was born. And I, I said, you know, you know, I never met him. You know, she said, I know. She said, I'll show you some pictures. She brought out pictures of him leading a group of black workers at City Hall because he organized wow. trans. He, he organized transit workers. He got the cap on and some stomped down brothers. Right? He said, you would have liked him. You, you like him in a lot of ways. And then that's all she ever said. Then she just took the pictures back, and we never talked about it anymore. Wow. But that's that's my my family. Uh, and the guys at Teletype, you know, the guys I played, you know, they taught me how to play poker and all that kind of, you know, I liked them because they were older than me and they had seen Charlie Parker. And I grew up on bebop and jazz, right? So my, my cousins would sing me to sleep with, with jazz. 
you know, uh, Moody's Mood for Love. You know, uh, there I go, there I go, there I go, and so forth. Pretty Baby Out of Soul that uh, snaps my control. All my other cousins were saying blues in the night. My mama then told me, when I, and by this time I'd be fast asleep, right? So I grew up in a black, you know, kind of world in, you know, Chicago. Uh, and so I would hang out with the old guys because they actually saw Charlie Parker, you know, mm -hmm. and I thought that was like really cool. So I would bug them about Charlie Parker. What they did was they would defend me when people would attack me in other parts of the neighborhood or whatever. And they would say like, you know, like, hey, you know, you deal with him, you got to deal with us. Uh, and so I was okay. Uh, the gangbang is in my neighborhood. I lived on the, on the border between uh, Almighty Black Peacestone Nation, Blackstone Rangers, and the Gangster Disciples. And they were like, you know, just... It's knucklehead gangbangers, man. You know, they're not like, you know, they weren't drug, you know, you couldn't do drugs, so the mafia ran that. So they just fought all the time. And, you know, nickel dime hustle stuff. And they were like a royal pain in the butt. But I have, like, I never talked to them much other than to tell them, like, why don't y'all, like, do something, make some sense. Mm -hmm. But they, they listened to me and they knew what I was doing, which I was not aware of at the time. And so sometimes if I come home late at night, they would be uh, just standing on the corner or standing in the alley, not pull my car up in the alley. And they would pop out from somewhere and say, what's happening, man? What's happening? I said, I'm okay. He said, man, you know, uh, police are looking for you, but we got, we got the neighborhood, man, so don't worry about it, you know. Uh, and so I, I worked with them. I never told them what to do. I never told them, like, you know, join the Marines or whatever. And I tried to get them to use their organization skills to do something other than just fight each other all the time. Right. Said, yeah, you know, and, but I didn't, I mean, I didn't, you know, I didn't like lecture them. I would just say like, I mean, you sitting here, man, with your owls folded up and, you know, your arm all jacked up and like, what'd you do? You went in there and got to fight with another brother. Like, what, like, when you get out of that? Like, I really don't understand that. When you get out of that? And they said, oh man, he said this and he said that, man, and black peace don't know back down and blah, blah, blah. I said, you know, white people enjoy that. The more they see y'all fighting, the happier they are, you know. And so that's all I'm going to say. You don't have to do anything you don't want to. Uh, but, uh, you know, you know, that's my position. And so I never, I never patronized them. Uh, they helped me with the school boycotts. We later had a massive school boycott. And the way you got kids out of school was the street guys did it for you. No, you could pass out a leaflet like Hyde Park High School. Now, I'll never forget that time. We're standing in front of the school, passing out leaflets, uh, saying, please boycott. You know, I, I think I actually found one. I didn't have a chance to send it, but I have a, uh, we, had a we had a Freedom Summer thing. I don't know if you can, can you yep. see that. Yeah, yeah, I can see it. Yeah, this is the second boycott. The, the establishment had the first and, boycott, but we were the renegades and had the second boycott. And this was still before the March on Washington, correct? No, no, th this piece is after. The leading up to the march, okay. what I did before the march, after, that's what all these other things are. Once people thought I had an organization, people asked me to come help them. So they assumed mm -hmm. they had an organization, which I did not have. So I got invited to pick at the NAACP, you know, Wilbur Daniels. Down at Antioch Baptist Church. I have a, you know, a picture of that. Uh, and we were complaining because he was the head of the NAACP and we thought he just sold out to the political machine. So we went and picketed his church one Sunday. And much to our surprise, he invited us into his uh, office after the service because the deacons wanted to beat us up. The deacon said, Reverend, you give us the word, we'll run them all the way back, you know, like, you know, Chicago. I mean, it's, Rough, you know, rough and tumble politics. He said, no, 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 I'll talk to him. Well, you know, I'll talk to him. 
So they invited us into his, you know, big thing, where, you know, where Venice had this school. They got a church with a thousand people, so he got some money. And he said, what do you want to talk about? So we laid out all this stuff. You know, it's in one of the articles I said, uh, about why you tied to the machine, like why you selling out black people. And he said, what do you want me to do? I said, why don't you stand with the people, man? Like, come on. He picks up the phone and calls the mayor's office. Right there, we sit right there, we looking like, like we said, like, whoa, I wonder if he really thinks, you know, like he calls the mayor's office and says, my people had told me to stop hanging around and selling them out. So I got to stand with my people. And then he hung up and we said, like, whoa, well, what we didn't know was that he was in a fight with the other Baptist ministers for being too radical. And this was his way to break with the machine by seeing that we forced him to break with the machine. Mm-hmm. So that means that something he wanted to do that he could say we did it, that he didn't do it, mm-hmm. you know. So, but I didn't know that at the time, because like I'm 22 years old, I don't know all this stuff. You know, like, I have no idea what's going on. Uh, so, but he, I became a friend of his, uh, and he he could preach, man. He could like blow your eardrums out at them freedom rallies, man. I mean, he, he was good. So I helped, I worked on stuff in his neighborhood. Uh, and then these, uh, uh, so the organization of, uh, parents. It was called the 70 person steward committee. And they were fighting segregated schools in their neighborhood. And what was happening was, this is in August, the school, Chicago schools were like so messed up. And you had a overcrowded black school that was east of, east of uh, 70, uh, was it Stewart Street, Stewart Avenue that had 400 more people than capacity, right? Four blocks west of Stewart Avenue was a predominantly white school that had 500 vacancies, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, we said, well, why don't you just let them kids walk across the street and go to that school? Right. Said, no, 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 you know what they did? They were gonna build temporary Quonset hut type things, you know, like you used to have down in Dickinson Hall on the campus between a railroad track that came from downtown, the, the stockyards, and an alley, right? Wow. And they were gonna build these, and the trains came by about every like half an hour, you know, freight trains, you know, like 50, 100 cars, like rumble, 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 right? And they were gonna put these black kids in these little, you know, looked like, you know, kind of trailer park things, rather than let them integrate the school. So what they asked me to do was, would I help them stop the construction of these uh, trailers. And I said, you know, okay, you know, I'm down with that. And they said, well, you know, give us your number and we'll call you when they begin construction because we had no idea exactly when the thing was going to start. So about a week after I had talked to them, they met me in the park. I got to call six o'clock in the morning, get over here to 73rd and low because the, the uh, cement trucks are coming in and it's raining, man. It's like a thunderstorm. Seven, six o'clock in the morning. So I drive over there, my little boat flight. I'm expecting all the people that was at the meeting to be out there with me. We have like 10 people, man. It's like we got a block of two ends of an alley with 10 people, right? So they said, this is not gonna work. So what we ended up doing was, the first time I got arrested, I parked my little Volkswagen at one end of the, of the block of one end, and then we lay down in, in the street, you know, in, in the curb so that the trucks couldn't, you know, get in. Well, first of all, it's raining, so when you're in the gutter, here comes all this rain, so you're soaking wet, and it's not very pleasant. 
and these big cement trucks are rolling up on you and slamming on the brakes like two or three feet from you, man. Mm-hmm. So you're there down there with, with these mothers, you know, people who had kids in the school. And I'm saying like, uh, Mr. Councilman, what, what, will, what do you think will happen if the, the brakes don't work on one of them trucks? She said, well, it won't matter to you because you won't feel a thing. And I said, that's not, that's not helping, you know. So anyway, we got, we got locked up. You know, they threw us in the wagon. Uh, they ripped your pants. That's why I started to wear Levi's. If don't wear khakis to, to a Chicago demonstration. Because when the police arrest you, they grab you by the top of your pants and the bottom, and they pull, so the seam breaks. But Levi's, the seam, yeah, the seams don't break. That's why you wear Levi's. And I wear a hat in the demonstration. I have a straw hat, but I have paper inside because they hit you in the head, man. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I have it padded with newspaper all around the crowd and across the top. Because when they, when they come at you, they hit you across the top of the head, gives you a concussion. Or they will throw you head first into the police wagon off the side of the wagon. They don't like walk in there. They just like, boom, throw you through the air. Yeah, so it's that kind of world. Uh, after I get locked up several times, this is why my cousins think I'll go in the march because I've been locked up several times. And, you know, everybody knows me. The neighborhood knows me. You know, and I, it's not a celebrity, but people know you. Like, I'm safe walking in my neighborhood at night because mm-hmm. people know me. Nobody's going to rob me. You know, Blackstone Rangers leave me alone. Uh, you know, they, they, they grab other people. They can be in there and say, oh, Blackstone, stone to the bone, you know, stone black and all like that. Uh, and so I go to the march. We get to the march, and what we had picked up on was that they were supposed to give SNCC a place on the program where SNCC could lay out what they wanted to do in the South, which was way more radical than what Dr. King was talking about, right? So we said, okay, we'll go to the march, but that's what we went for. We didn't want to go hear the, the regular people because we already knew what they were going to say. Uh, and so, you know, two trains, a green train, uh, you had a green ticket and the blue train and a blue ticket. Uh, and we left uh, in the evening and, you know, traveled all night and we ended up in Washington, D.C. the next morning. And we get out and there's, you know, there's people from all over the whole country, man. It's like a lot of people. Uh, it's a hot DC day. I grew up in DC, so I knew it was gonna be hot, but I didn't think it'd be that hot. It's about 95 degrees and you're humid. DC is always humid. So you're sweating, you know, your clothes are all soggy. You've been on the train because there's no, you're sleeping in the seating car. Anybody had no, you know, I mean, the written, you know, the leadership might have had a Pullman car, but we had just regular seats, right? Uh, and so you weren't very comfortable, and you probably needed to take a shower, but nobody much cared about that. Uh, and then when we got to the march, people were just smelling around. But what you liked was the vibe. You know, the young people from the South, uh, people from all these different, you know, flags from all different kind of states, uh, people that are just as, as kind of excited about you as you were about them. Uh, Would you say <laughs> yeah. with, uh, the demographics there, was it uh, – overwhelmingly black or was there, you know, uh, other, other races as well? Oh, yeah, I would, I would say maybe two to one black. Got you. Got you. No, it's mixed. Uh, the, the, the United Auto Workers under with, uh, Walter Ruther supported the march. So they encouraged white trade unionists to go. So if you notice the march is for jobs and freedom, mm-hmm. you know that it's a working thing. This is Randolph's, Randolph's uh, initiative. Uh, and so they're, they're white, uh, you know, it's a liberal thing. That's why you had an integrated platform, you know, with you had, you know, Marlon Brando and, you know, like the Pete Steger saying, I mean, I like Pete Steger, but, you know, I, 
with a third old debtor maybe. Uh, and Mahalia Jackson sang. But the, the people you wanted to hear, you wanted to hear John Lewis speak for SNCC, not John Lewis get up there and say what Ebel said. He said, whoa, man, like, what happened to what SNCC was supposed to say? Because, I mean, they censored their speech, man. I mean, they cut out, they chopped it up. So we, we didn't like that too much. Uh, and there, there was, uh, and James Baldwin, everybody knew James Baldwin had come in from Paris. And you couldn't see these tiny little guys, so I never got to actually see him in Washington, D.C. I didn't meet him until he came up here to work with us. Uh, and he assumed that he would be on the program. And they didn't put him on the program. Wow. You know, uh, part of that was the homophobic thing, because the, the, people complain about black nationalists. The Baptist church was like, yeah. that's why Bayard Rustin couldn't be the co-director of the march. Oh yeah! Wow, you know, King King and them—that's King and them. People talk about like no, it's Malcolm X and invited James Baldwin to meet with Elijah Muhammad. That's that second essay in the fire next time. He's having dinner with Elijah Muhammad. He ain't having no dinner with Martin Luther King. Mm -hmm. The Baptist preacher—they never invited him to dinner, so they wouldn't let Bayard be the co-chair to march. And Baldwin showed up. They said like no, no. I mean it was like whoa, and no women, no women spoke. It's crazy. And only the one gay man, he don't get to speak. And, you know, we know Jimmy was going to fire him up because Jimmy fires him up. You know, we just like, uh, and Malcolm talks about that later in Message to the Grass. It's like Baldwin came all the way from Paris and they wouldn't let him talk because they didn't know what he's going to say, which is why we liked him because you know what he's going to say. Uh, so you had that, that you liked the, the vibe of the people, but it was the, we thought the content was a little bit too optimistic. You know, I have a dream and so forth. Uh, uh, I mentioned that the, they announced that Dr. Du Bois had died in Ghana that morning before the march started, officially started, about 20 minutes before we were supposed to step off. And when Royal Wilkins read that over the loudspeaker, uh, we just kind of moved. We kind of, you know, yeah, how you like, like the air sucked out of you. Mm -hmm. it's, like, it's like somebody in your family died. Uh, and that's the way we kind of felt. And then we started to move. It wasn't time to move yet. We were supposed to wait for every state by state was supposed to move. Uh, and so we just started to move toward the Lincoln Memorial. And then so the march started 15 minutes early. And all of the leaders you know, had to run, get in front so they could lead us because we were going anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, so you had those those kind of moments that, that were, you know, it was a kind of changing of a kind of era, you know, like Du Bois, because you thought Du Bois would live forever, man. you know, yeah. I, I heard Du Bois speak in 1956 at Howard University, and he's like 80-something years old, man. and maybe a little bit older than that, and he spoke, the mic went out, and he spoke without a mic, wow. you know, filled up Rankin Chapel, the chapel was packed. You know, it's like pack, pack, you know, like every, and you had to put, put the, the outside mice work because people came all the way from all around DC, basement of the Founders Library, right next to the chapel. And then they had to put mics out over the campus because they couldn't get everybody either in the chapel or in the library. Wow. So I, me and my moms walked out at the end of the street, there's like 5,000 people out there listening to Dr. Dubois. I mean, that's Dr. Dubois, right? Like, you know. People might have thought people didn't like it. People love Dr. Dubois. And what would you say uh, for, I guess, for many UMass students, uh, they don't know uh, 
Du Bois's name beyond like you know the fact that that's the library's name after him. But what what was his impact on your generation? You know what made him such a powerful uh, figure that you you had? No, to it's to? it's it was we revered Du Bois. If you mm -hmm. had any pretense of being a black intellectual, Du Bois was the model, mm -hmm. right? Du Bois, by the time he was like 30 years old, had written more than most people wrote in their whole lifetime. You know what I'm saying? Du Bois was writing articles for the Berkshire Eagle when he's 15. 15. Wow. Right? He's writing articles. He writes, by the time he gets out of Harvard, he writes the Philadelphia Negro, and he has a doctoral dissertation, and he's barely 30 years old. If he had died in 19, then he did Souls of Black Folk in 1903. He's barely 30 years old. If he had died in 1903, he still would have written three great books mm -hmm. that you still read today. Right? I mean, how many people, people spend their whole life trying to write three great books or one great book? Right. But then he kept on going. Right? Founded the NAACP, Pan-Africanists, went to Ghana, so you knew all the you know, incredulous people. Everybody in the whole you know, third world knew him. You know. Uh, white people in America didn't know him, but black people around the world, you know, people from Asia knew him, the Japanese knew him, the Chinese knew him, everybody knew him, right? He was the one that said, you can be as smart as you want to be and stand up to white people and make a contribution and a range of kind of activities where you can be the NAACP or you can just write books or you can teach, you know, or you can start a Pan-African conference. So he was like the, the, kind of father figure for the whole 20th century civil rights movement mm -hmm. you know, and the Pan-African movement. Now he's the chair of the fifth Pan-African conference. Uh, look, when Du Bois died in Ghana, ambassadors, every country in Ghana that had an embassy sent their ambassador except the United States. They didn't send anybody. Every country in the world. They sent their top ambassador. They didn't send an attache. The ambassadors of Ghana went to Du Bois' funeral. You know, the ambassador from China went to Du Bois's show, you know, the ambassador from Russia, the ambassador from France, everybody knew who Du Bois was, right? Du Bois, you know, when Du Bois got locked up in 1953 from, you know, they said he was a communist and all like that. He got letters of support from Bertrand Russell, Albert Einstein, Pablo Picasso. Wow. And they let him go. They had let him go. You know, because they said they thought he was just another Negro and they were getting letters from like, Nobel Prize winner saying this that him, this is Dr. Dewey. Say who is that? Because people thought he, no, no, this ain't just another this is Dr. Dewey. Don't mess with him. Mm -hmm. And the reason he spoke at Howard was people said that you shouldn't let communists speak at Howard. And Mordecai Johnson, the president of Howard, you now he's you know he's there when I grew I grew up on that campus. He said, you can't tell me who to bring. This is Dr. Dewey. We let him bring him anytime we want. So that's why they invited him to speak on Howard's campus. Trustees were on the stage. Faculty was at the, the the thing was packed. The only way we got in was one of my mom, my mom's director student teaching. Two of us student teachers were football players who were doing the door, right? And when they had the capacity, they supposed to not let you in no more. But they were putting folding chairs in the back, you know, because it was that crowded. And they let us in because they knew my mom. So me and my mom's got two of the last chairs in the back row. Hey, don't mess with Dr. Dubois. Like, don't, <laughs> all you know, right, you may, you may not follow him anywhere. Like, cause he went all over the place, but he had a right to do it, but don't mess with him. Yeah. Y'all don't have to like him. We like him. Yeah. So uh, thank you for that. Uh, we are, you know, down to our last 15 minutes. So I think, you know, to kind of wrap this, this conversation up, let's kind of try and talk about 
both the original March on Washington and, you know, today's movement, um, you know, the movements of the 60s versus today. Yeah. And so I guess I'll, I'll start by asking, you know, the simple question or, or difficult question. Um, what simul similarities and differences do you see between, you know, the movements of the 50s and 60s versus the movement of, you know, this, this past decade? You know, what differences and similarities well, do you see? a couple of things. The, the March, the... The good feeling of the march didn't last more than a month because mm. September September 15th, and they blew up those kids in Birmingham in that church. Mm -hmm. And King is talking about we have a dream, this, that, and the other. And that's a that's an upbeat thing. Like, no, we're going to go back to the South. We're going to fight. These crazy white people blew up those little four little girls in a church, man. So at this point, you're saying dreaming and all that stuff may not be the way to go. Right. You know, that this is going to take a little bit more than dreaming. Like, so you got to, like, this is going to take some work. And then Malcolm on November 10th gives his message to the grassroots speech, where he talks about, you know, y'all talking about you want freedom and nonviolence, and they blow up your church and kill four little black babies. Like, what are you going to do about that? He said, you know, you go fight in a war somewhere for white people, but you won't fight to defend, you know, young black kids getting blown up. So Malcolm is starting to, to, Malcolm was on the edge, you know, like, you like Malcolm, but you didn't want to follow him. I've been to, to, to the temple number two every time Malcolm came to town. You know, I, I, would, I even got in arguments with him and stuff. You know, I mean, I'm like, he's a brilliant sucker. Uh, but he, he loved everybody. People, the Malcolm you see on the TV is not the Malcolm that interacted with young black people. Mm -hmm. uh, he liked to argue. He liked to read. He carried paperback books in his pocket. He read all the time. Uh, and I challenged him once at one day meetings. I got up and said something smart ass uh, about house Negro Piazza, what house Negroes feel Negroes. And I said, Mr. Malcolm, you can't say that because if the women are in the house, they're getting raped by the master, so they'd be safer in the field. And he said, Well, how you know that? I said, I, I, I read Kenneth Stanton, the peculiar institution. So he wrote it down on a three by five card. Came back six months later, I'm walking in, he's coming down the coming down the street, and he said, hey, you, Kenneth Stamp, come here, let's talk. And I said, what, what are you talking about? He said, let's talk about, I said, whoa, like, time out, like, what, I don't, how you remember that? He said, remember what? He said, chapter two, let's talk, I said, whoa, 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 hey, like, now, <laughs> that's the kind of brain he had. It's the kind wow. Of brain he had. No, he's when he asked me to join the nation with some other young guys, uh, and I said, I ain't wearing no bow tie, I ain't selling no newspapers, I ain't selling no bean pies, and I, I'm in Chicago, I'm Mississippi, Chicago, so I love the blues joint. I'm going to hear some Howling Whoop. I'm going to drink some gin, going to eat me a pig sandwich once in a while. And Malcolm started laughing and said, I used to be there. I said, well, I still am, so I ain't about to go. <laughs> but they said, you know, I, I got a lot of coverage in Muhammad Speaks newspaper, yeah. you know. Uh, so, uh, and every takeover I had, they would send the reporter. And they also would send somebody from the Food of Islam. So if there was any danger, these guys would show up for you. Now, they never said that. You know, they didn't say, they would just say, like, what are you doing? Like, we took about building in Northwestern. They, the guy said, uh, what's happening up there? I'm going to send a reporter. And he said, and we got, if you need help, we got help. You know, so the reporter can't got a nice story. But if they had attacked us in that building, you know, truly Islam would have owned on them. Wow. But they never, they never said that. So, I mean, I didn't. I got along with a lot of people who I, you know, I would never join the nation because uh, it's too tight, you know. I mean, I couldn't figure out all that stuff. You know, that wasn't me. Uh, but they didn't demand that you did. Mm -hmm. you know, all you had to do was, uh, you know, as long as you're doing something positive for black people, 
that's what that was. But once they killed the kids, then Malcolm's whole point about why do you want to integrate with people that would do something like that? Like, do you really, really think, you know, and that goes back to Du Bois in the 1930s. Why do you want to integrate your kids into a school with teachers that hate them? Mm-hmm. You know, and I grew up on a Jim Crow school, so I know what they're talking about. You know, like my best teachers, you know, I didn't have a white teacher until I got to high school. And all I learned, I didn't learn much of anything in high school. I learned everything I learned with brilliant black teachers. Right? So I know that black people are smart. You had to convince me of that. And the smartest people I knew were black people. Right? Like my mom saw Tony Moss and Mary Rock and Roberta Flack. And, you know, like, don't tell me black people can't do stuff because they walking around when I'm a little kid, like they're in and out of my mom's office. You know, Sterling Brown, E. Franklin Frazier, that's who corrected my term papers when I had to do my homework. Mm-hmm. You know, so don't, don't tell me black people can't run stuff, you know. Uh, and all you wanted was what, you know, equal, you know, like give us our share, you know, give us our share of the money and leave us alone. But, you know, turns out that's too much money, so you have to integrate. So that means you got to figure out how to get along with white people. And then you go to integrate a school, and you're like, you know, that's smart. Like, you know, it's like a big sham. Like, we showed up, you know, the whole summer before I got to integrated Roosevelt High School in D.C., you know, I'm reading the books. I get the textbooks ahead of time. I'm ready. Like, you know, y'all, like, you know, I get there, and I look around and say, where, where are all these genius white people y'all be telling us about? Because the people we see in the cafeteria, it's like, no, no. We kill them on every test, right? I had the top scores in math every year. I don't even like math. But I can do it better than the white kids. I don't even, I don't even like math. But you studied, the tests were biased. You say the tests were biased. Of course they're biased. White people are wrong. We knew that. She just studied twice as hard. We got that. And they thought we were, you know, we take the citywide test. We said, can we leave now? Because we finished and say, this is a two-hour test. Well, I'm finished. They say, well, you only been here an hour. Yeah, but I'm finished. Can we go outside and hang on the playground a little bit? They say, poor little colored people, they couldn't do the test, so they're hanging out on the playground. We killed them. They stopped giving the test. The test didn't show we were stupid. The test was, we smarter than y'all. We smarter than y'all. You know, you had a few white, you had a few white kids that were our equal. Right, but then they hung with us. You know, they come sit at the black table. You know, you know, if you want to help us your homework, you come sit where the black people are, not the other way around. You know, mm-hmm. and we went. We don't have that divide you had today, because the playgrounds I went to, I helped the guys with math and English. They helped me with woodshop and sheet metal. Well, I wouldn't mm-hmm. have graduated. You know, I couldn't. You know, I, you know, I would. I could mess up some sheet metal. You know, I could take a lathe and jack up some wood. So they talked me through that, and I helped them with English and math. So I wasn't better than them. They had skills I didn't have. When they played ball, they picked me too. So I understand a world where black people can run things by themselves. Right? That's what Malcolm was talking about. Why do you want to go throw that away to go into a place where you won't be treated equally and you have to prove yourself? What you've done is equal to what they have. They just don't know it yet. Right? That's where black studies came from. No, uh, the program at UMass was started by a lot of people that came out of Howard University because we knew that black people were smart. Mm-hmm. So we just said, just get out the way and leave us alone, and we can do this. Like, yeah, we you know, we don't want to be like y'all, you know, because y'all don't have that much to offer us, you know. Uh, at Northwestern, when I was in the history department, you know, I left, I left early without even like barely finishing up. I, 
because they didn't have anything to teach me. And they told me that. They said, like, why are you here? You already know more about the stuff than we do. I said, well, I'm waiting for the water in so I can get out of here, you know. <laughs> and then, you know, we took over a building. They started black studies. So I had a job for life. Like, I started my own academic mm-hmm. discipline and got myself hired, and I've been doing it for 50 years. Most people can't say that. You know, I never taught a course I didn't design myself, mm-hmm. right, because I was always the first one in the door. You know, and they said, you know, what do you want me to do? I said, look, we got 500 black kids in the auditorium. You can do whatever you want, <laughs> you know. So the, the, that's when the shift comes. You know, the whole thing about there's a tension between black control versus uh, a society where everybody kind of is all mixed up. Our argument is always been, that's my, still my argument, that the, the people that have made this country what, is, what, what it was, are black people. You know, du Bois has a book from 1922 called The Gift of Black Folk, right? We're the ones being on the bottom that teach people how to live without a lot of stuff, right? So what, what do we bring, what, coming out of slavery, what do we have? Spirituals. You can't name me a song that slave masters wrote. Mm-hmm. Right? You can't name me this, but if I say nobody knows the trouble I've seen, you know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. We still, but you don't know who wrote that, but you still sing it. An illiterate slave sang that, and we still sing it. You can't, there's not a song from the 19th century other than the Star Spangled Banner, which did not match up to Dipter Boys and say, right? That there's no culture that comes out of slavery, right? White people don't know how to enjoy life. They spend all their time working. Black people say, no, man, you work to live, not live to work. Mm-hmm. So the brothers say, whoa, I got a raise. I'm, I'm taking next week off. He said, don't you? No, no, no. I got enough money for next week, so I'm taking the week off. What are you going to do? Nothing. <laughs> Chill. Like, why do I have to work all the time? So, well, you got to work. No, you don't. No, no. No, you have to live. Your life is not work. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what black people bring. Black people get a lot of money. They don't go out and invest it in the stock market. They buy something to show that they got some money and they chill and they go, you know, they take the kids to the thing or whatever, they hang on the corner. You got to have something to show the bling thing because that's the African thing. You know, what's the point of having gold if it's in Fort Knox? Gold got to be on my finger, man. Got be right. So you can see it, man. You know, you know, what's the point of wearing like a blue suit when you can wear a gold suit? So you see me coming, right? Like you don't know how to, they don't know how to, don't know how to live. Uh, don't have no rhythm. Uh, they look. They look. <laughs> Professor Bracy, we we got five minutes left, and we have to get to at least like a couple of these pointers at the end. Just the to, point, that's the point about yep. today. What got what, you? Got what you. Is, today is you have fifty years from when I started off. You now have a movement of young people who already have established in American culture mm-hmm. the primacy of African American culture. Right, so I don't have, you don't have to argue with Elvis Presley, ain't no such person. Mm. Like, nobody will make an argument that Britney Spears can hang with Beyonce. That's like absurd. Mm. Like, you know, you wouldn't even start that. Don't even say that. Right, but we had to listen to Elvis Presley and all that stuff. Now they, there's no such people, mm-hmm. right? If you want to see what defines the culture, you gotta go to what, what are black people doing? Like, what is Kanye dropping? What is Jay-Z dropping? What is Nile dropping? You don't, you don't say, oh, I wonder what the latest uh, thing is coming out of a Taylor Swift. Mm-hmm. Not really. Yeah. That, she's good for what they do, but that 
Right. That I will say the celebrity talk with, uh, brings me to one question I wanted to ask you about, you know, the importance of the, the black celebrity and the black athlete in movements like this. You know, what, how do you feel about that? You know, what is the responsibility of these figures they, in a movement they like the, this? They, for the first time, and, you know, Harold Cruz called for this back in 1967 in Crisis for the Negro Intellectual. He says, what we should take control of are the things that we do better than anybody else. So we produce culture and we produce superiority in certain fields. We should control those fields and then use that for our politics. What this generation of black athletes has done is exactly that. LeBron James said, I got $30 million a year. I don't need no more, so I can do whatever I want. You can't buy me because you don't mm -hmm. own me. Right? I don't need you. You need me. Right? So he is free to say whatever he wants, and nobody tell him to sit down and shut up. Right? Right. He's, not, he's not Michael Jordan. He's not the earlier guys who you the first one. He's not Jackie Robinson. Like, Jackie, don't say nothing because you got to get along with the white people. LeBron ain't got to get along with nobody but LeBron. Mm -hmm. right? And all the rest of the brothers say, if LeBron can stand up, I'm standing up too. Right? Because the person that can take you on the court and run you off the court also got consciousness, didn't even go to college. But he knows where he came from, and he said, no, no, I want to take this and get the people where I came from, and I want to move all of them, and y'all are in the way, right? I, don't, I, don't, I got $30 million, but I'm one of y'all. Right? They, they know who they are despite the money that they make, and they make huge amounts of money, mm -hmm. and they give a lot of it back. And that's what you judge them on. You say, okay, you got 30 million, how much are you giving back? You can't spend 30 million. The consciousness is, is much more sophisticated now. And they're much more, you know, like they were talking about boycotting the games last night because they, you know, shot the other, you know, uh, Jacob, uh, like, you know, I mean, just like, you know, at some point you got to say, like, come on. Uh, but they, they're not afraid to say that. They don't say, if I say something, I might lose my job. They say, no, no, no. If we don't play, they don't have no league. Mm -hmm. You know, like, no, no, we know who runs this. You know, like, you know, they ain't going to play. The coaches ain't going to play. We are the ones people come to see. Like, we know that. So, you know, and the National Football League messed up because they didn't know that. So now they're trying to regroup and figure out how to deal with that, you know, rather than listen to some, you know, the people that look at them. Uh, if you have a sport where you put black people in a place where the only opportunity they have to excel is athletics, then they become good at it because that's what you put your energy into, right? But they know that because that gives them a monopoly on a particular kind of part of the society that they know they're indispensable. Mm -hmm. Same thing with, you know, with, with like, you know, hip hop culture. It's like, no, no, we decide that. He said, you don't have to give us all the money, but you gotta give us a whole lot more than we ever had before, right? And if you don't, then you don't have no culture because go ahead without us. Where are you gonna go without us? You know, they started off trying to give you vanilla ice. Where did that go, <laughs> right? I mean, that's like, but that, that was supposed to be the Elvis Presley of hip hop. It was like, no, no, yeah. <laughs> no. The only, the only guy that can get in there a little bit is Eminem because he knows how to be humble and he don't go around telling everybody <laughs> stuff that he's not. So they tolerate him and he got, he's the only white person in his group. So it's not like four white guys up there doing hip hop, right? Mm -hmm. they, you, don't, you don't see that. Like you don't, right. yeah. You got, you got to, val it's validated by black people and they know that they control that. They're the producers, they're the owners, you know. Uh, it started with Prince, started with Michael Jackson. You know, like Prince just skipped the record companies entirely. He said, look, I just do this and I sell it myself. I don't need you to advertise for me. Like my fans know where I am. You know, Michael Jackson bought his own catalog. 
and they got mad at him because he bought the Beatles catalog. But Michael Jackson took all this money and went around buying the catalogs of all these older black artists who weren't getting no royalties. Right? Michael Jackson did that. Now, Michael Jackson, you know, killed himself trying to keep making himself over. I mean, he had a, you know, I mean, he had a horrible life, you know. But he knew the business, you know. So he said, okay, you know, Chuck Berry ain't making no money because Chuck Berry don't own the copyright. He said, I'll buy Chuck Berry's catalog and give it to Chuck Berry. Now Chuck Berry makes the money. Crazy. Right? Then he bought the Beatles catalog. All of a sudden, Michael Jackson's crazy. Michael Jackson been weird his whole life because he grew up on a stage. He didn't have no real life. Mm -hmm. They didn't get mad at him till he bought the beats. No, no, you can buy black people stuff. Don't be buying white people stuff. Michael Jackson said, I could buy whatever I want. I got a billion dollars. Right. So they come after you at that point. They can't come after LeBron that way. Right, yeah. right. Because he's surrounded by his own people. That's the consciousness. Uh, your generation is not happy with symbols because you see that symbols don't mean much. Uh, and you say, well, why were the symbols up there in the first place? So you're not impressed by taking down the statue of Robert E. Lee. Why you put him up there? Mm -hmm. Why should you get credit for taking down something you know should up there in the first place? Right. You're going to change the name of the Redskins. Why you call them the Redskins in the first place? Right. You know, like, right. Why, why should you get congratulated for doing something right? Right. You should have right. been right. See, that's where you all start. See, you already know that the system is wired against you, so I don't have to convince you of that. I don't have to say, look, my brother, you know, things are really messed up and rich people get more than poor people. You say, like, I know that. Like, why are you telling me? How you, how you deal with it? You mm -hmm. start off, you start off where we had to convince people. I would have to argue with people that they weren't going to be able to make it to be a Rockefeller, right? Because the way the thing is set up, they want you to keep trying that. But you can't, you're not going to make it by yourself. you got to hang with some other people. Now, you can get a collective and get Black people moving. But if you think you're going to jump up there by yourself and come out somewhere like that, it's not happening. Right? Mm -hmm. And if you are, you'll be the only one because there could be no two of you. Right? You already understand that. So you think collectively already. Right. Yeah. You check yeah. with yourself. You communicate with yourself. Uh, and you don't, you don't break with the past because that's what the big argument always was. You know what we did. You know, hip-hop is historical. You sample. You draw from the past. You know, you revere the elders. And you take that wisdom and knowledge and you build on that. Rather than say, we're going to do it all by ourselves. We're going to start all over again. You know, so you're not making that mistake. Well, don't trust anybody over 30. You said, no, no, no. We trust them. We just they can't do what we can do. That's all. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's an amazing consciousness for young people. Mm -hmm. You know, and you have white people that follow you. Uh, we didn't want white people to follow us necessarily. You know, it got to be a black thing. You said, no, no, it'd be a black-led thing, but anybody who wants to follow black people is welcome to come along. So y'all got that going. So if you say everybody hit the street, here comes some white people. You don't say, why are the white people out here? You say, how come ain't more of you out here? Mm -hmm. Right? Rather than saying, like, what are you doing here? You know, and they don't mind following black leadership. That's, that's new and that's different, right? Uh, the whole thing with, with, the, with the gender thing, you know, uh, you could always terrorize a black movement by saying, do you want your daughter to marry a Negro? Nowadays, that, that doesn't be the thing. You know, like white females voted for Barack Obama and nobody's not like, you probably just black man, like, so what? I mean, that's meaningless. It's just meaningless to your gender. It doesn't mean a thing. Uh, you can't scare white females by saying black men are going to get them. They look like, what are you talking about? It's like, I pick who I go out with. Ain't nobody going to tell me who to go out with. 
so that they have control because women get control of themselves they don't need to be protected from anybody. You know, they'll decide how they live. Yeah. And if they decide they want to go to a Black Lives Matter rally, then they go. Right, right. They, they don't have to check with their parents. They don't say, oh, you know, if you go out there with those colored people, they're really bad. Say, like, please, like, come here. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, and they got stuff in their ear that they don't want their parents to hear them listening to. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Professor Bracy, we're pretty much out of time here. Uh, hopefully, UMass isn't going to be mad at us for going on a little too long. But I'm going to ask, I guess, one final question for you. Um, and it's just been something that I've been kind of struggling with these past couple months. How do you remain, you know, optimistic that change will come when you see, you know, with countless protests across the country in these past couple months, we still see, you know, black lives being targeted by, uh, by the police. How do you remain optimistic? It's not, it's not a question of being, being optimistic. It's the question of what do you, what do you want to do with your life? Uh, you, you only have so much time and you may not solve all of the world's problems for black people but you do your part. And that's what your life is. That to me is the most, uh, that's what you do. You don't, you don't train your kids for freedom, you train them to fight for freedom. Mm. And all you want them to do is, you know, what you, you, you may not win. See, I may not win. You know, like I thought I would see it in my lifetime, but it's, that's not gonna happen. You may not see freedom for black people in your lifetime. Your job is not to say I quit because I tried it for a week and you know, we didn't win, so I'm going home. No, no, no. You say, I will do as much as I can, as long as I can. And so that my kids and grandkids won't have to do what I did. Right? That's powerful. And you, that's, that's my job. My job is to clear space so that my kids can come and move beyond me and their kids can come and move beyond them. And if, if I can, this is why I teach, you know, if, if you are, if I can clear space for you so that you don't have to go through what I went through, then you can go take it to another level, but right. you have to, but that's your job. Right. So, and you do as far as you go, as far as you can. So when you're, cause my, the thing I would hate the most, this is the thing that, that checks me all the time. You don't want to be getting a phone call from your granddaughter or your grandson. And they're saying, grandpa, you lived during the civil rights movement. What did you do? And you said, oh, I wasn't in that cause they might get in trouble. They will call up somebody else. So you got to be able to answer that phone call and say, oh yeah, let me tell you what I did. And then your grandkids love you. And they notice you've done something and they don't think you're a chump, right? They don't say, grandpa just thought he was in business school trying to make money. That ain't about nothing. They want to know like, oh, so people say, what did you do? I can say, well, you know, I got arrested. You got arrested. I say, I don't like it. I wouldn't recommend it, but you have to be prepared to sacrifice. Mm -hmm. you, know, you have to be prepared. You have to be committed to moving the world to a better place. And if you work on that, what better life can you have? And I'm not a religious person, but if that doesn't get you into heaven, then I don't want to go. Mm. You know, wow. if, if people go to church and that's all they do, I'm sorry, I ain't doing that. I'd rather stick, okay, I go to church once in a while, but I'd rather spend the rest of my time trying to move people to a better place. Wow. And if that, if that doesn't count, then, then wherever that is, I don't want to go. I want to go where people are, moving people to a better place. And that's it. What other life can you have? Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you so much, uh, Professor Brazy, for taking time out of your day to talk to me. And uh, thank you, UMass, for, you know, giving us this opportunity to have a, a great conversation. Uh, but I think that's going to be, that's going to wrap this conversation up.
Okay. Yep. It's been fun. <laughs> yep. All right.